1932, the philosopher Bertrand Russell published a charming, brilliant essay called In Praise of Idleness, in which he noted that the morality of work is the morality of slaves, and the modern world has no need of slavery. Unquote. If an Oxford University study is correct in projecting that 47% of all jobs in the United States will be lost to automation by 2030, we'll soon hardly need work, much less slavery. Almost a century ago, Russell recognized that most of the hours human beings spend working are total waste of time, noting that, quote, only a foolish asceticism, usually vicarious, makes us continue to insist on work in excessive quantities now that the need no longer exists, unquote. He ties the problem to the facts that the idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich, and that the industrial labor mobilized for World War I was never demobilized. Of course, a decade after his essay was published, Another mobilization was underway on a much larger scale, ultimately congealing into what President Eisenhower called, quote, the military-industrial complex, unquote. What's most striking about Russell's essay is its last paragraph in which he envisions a future for humankind that sounds nearly identical to our prehistoric past. Excerpt begins, above all, there will be happiness and joy of life instead of frayed nerves, weariness, and dyspepsia. The work exacted will be enough to make leisure delightful, but not enough to produce exhaustion. Ordinary men and women having the opportunity of a happy life will become more kindly and less persecuting and less inclined to view others with suspicion. The taste for war will die out, partly for this reason and partly because it will involve long and severe work for all. Good nature is of all moral qualities the one that the world needs most, and good nature is the result of ease and security, not of life of arduous struggle. Hitherto, we have continued to be as energetic as we were before we were machines. There were machines. In this, we have been foolish, but there is no reason to go on being foolish forever. End of excerpt. If work is unnecessary, why do we continue to behave as if the key to a good life is to spend most of it doing something we'd rather not? The Price of Money Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Money often costs too much. Malcolm Forbes said, He who dies with the most toys wins. The more we understand what human life was like before agriculture, the more civilization looks like a pyramid scheme. Disparities of wealth and power were among the first things to emerge when people settled into villages and towns. Someone had to make decisions about how, who got how much of what and when. Someone had to organize the sowing and the reaping, the protection and trading of land and livestock. Once wealth emerged, so did an elite class that was naturally attempted to benefit further from their privileged position. 
When similar situations arise in foraging societies, when a large animal is killed, for example, formal codes of behavior kick in to prevent inequities in the distribution of the windfall. Among bands of a few dozen foragers who all know each other intimately, cheating is quickly detected and discouraged. Initially with light-hearted humor, but with serious threat of more severe repercussions if a light ribbing proves ineffective. Once human communities grew beyond the point where every individual had a direct relationship with everyone else, something fascinating and terrible happened. Other people became abstractions. Perhaps Joseph Stalin was thinking along the lines when he said, quote, One death is a tragedy. A million is a, is a, is a statistic. Unquote. When the number of human beings rises to the point where it's no longer possible to picture the faces of those who are affected by our decisions, innate human compassion is often overwhelmed by other concerns. Politicians who would unthinkingly jump into a river to save a drowning child have no qualms about approving policies that leave millions of impoverished kids floundering without basic health care or school lunches. Humans seem to be two different creatures when we compare how we function in small-scale versus large-scale societies, grasshoppers and locusts. Wealth disparities unimaginable to foragers are common in the modern world. In the United States, wealth distribution hasn't been this out of whack since the so-called Roaring Twenties. In 2012, according to research compiled by French economist Thomas Piketty and his colleagues, the top 1% of households in the United States took 22.5% of total income, the highest proportion since 1928. In the 1950s, an American CEO would expect to be paid about 20 times more than a typical worker at his firm. Today. The ratio is more than 10 times that, over 200 to 1. And some CEOs make that kind of ratio look downright Marxist. In 2011, Apple's Tim Cook was paid $378 million in salary, stock, and other benefits, 6,258 times the wage of the average employee at Apple. The richest 85 people in the world control more wealth than the poorest half of the planet's population. Let that sink in for a moment. 85 human beings who fart in bed, just like you and me, control more wealth than 3.5 billion other people, many of whom live in desperate poverty. Piketty, who is, quote, arguably the world's leading expert in income and wealth inequality, unquote, according to Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, has concluded that income inequality in the United States today is, quote, probably higher than in any other society at any time in the past, anywhere in the world." Unquote. Such disparities of wealth are not just inhumane, they are inhuman, offending our innate predisposition for fairness. When three Tupinamba natives were taken to France from Brazil in the 16th century, the essay Montaigne was present at their visit with King Charles IX. When the natives were asked what they found most peculiar about the European way of life, Montaigne recounts, quote, they had observed that there were among us men full and crammed with all manner of commodities, while in the meantime others were begging at their doors, lean and half-starved, with hunger and poverty, and they thought it strange that these necessitous 
people were able to suffer so great an inequality and injustice, and that they did not take the others by the throats or set fire to their houses. Unquote. Of course, sometimes poorer people do rise up and set fire to the houses of the rich, but things soon settle into the same pattern of elite few profiting from the labor of an unorganized masses yet again. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Given the recurrent pattern, it's not surprising that many have concluded that this state of affairs is simply the result of human nature, or of, human, of nature itself. Many of the great robber barons of the 20th century were found fond of twisting Darwin's theories to imply that their wealth was simply the logical result of their innately superior fitness, and was therefore as natural and inevitable as any other form of predation upon the weak by the strong. In his essay, Gospel of Wealth, for example, Andrew Carnegie argued that while this natural law leads to great suffering among the poor, it ensures the survival of the fittest in every department. We accept and welcome, therefore, as conditions to which we must accommodate ourselves, great inequality of environment, the concentration of business, industrial and commercial in the hands of a few, and the law of competition between these as being not only beneficial, but essential for the future progress of the race." Unquote. But while Darwin believed economic inequality to be a necessary first step in the development of civilization, he knew that material inequality wasn't present in many of the societies he had visited in his travels, and that such inequality must therefore be something more complicated than a straightforward expression of human nature. Darwin's observations has been confirmed by contemporary researchers. Gaudi concludes that, quote, all the assumptions economists make about the economic man are absent in foraging societies. People and in immediate return societies are not acquisitive, self-centered, cost-benefit calculators. In these societies, it can be most clearly seen that the economic man as a universal human type is a fiction, unquote. The more we learn about foragers, the clearer it becomes that their lives are more approximate expressions of human nature than ours are. In that modern market, capitalism requires an array of subversions of our natural behavior. The view of human nature embedded in Western economic theory is an anomaly in human history. Unquote. Gaudi concludes, the hunter-gatherer represents uneconomic man. At an anthropology conference in 1966 called, quote, Man the Hunter, unquote, Marshall Salins presented research that posed the first substantive modern-day challenge to the Hobbesian paradigm of prehistoric life. In a symposium called, quote, The Original Affluent Society, unquote, Salins introduced many of the ideas I've been arguing in these pages. A few years later, he articulated his thesis in more detail in a book called Stone Age Economics, in which he wrote, quote, The world's most primitive people have been possession have few possessions, but they are not poor. Poverty is not a certain small amount of goods, nor is it a relation between means and ends. Above all, it is a relation between people. Poverty, Salins declared, is a social status. As such, it is the invention of civilization. Unquote. Israeli anthropologist Nurit Bird David went a step further, arguing that foragers aren't merely not poor, their behavior suggests that they believe themselves to be rich. Quote, 
just as Westerners' behavior is understandable in relation to their assumption of shortage, so hunter-gatherers' behavior is understandable in relation to their assumption of affluence. Unquote. Noble savages, indeed.